Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. <laughs> my reality was that I was going to prison for the rest of my life, and there was nothing no one was going to be able to do about it. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster podcast with hosts Amy and... And I'm um, Kevin. And we're coming back at you this week with episode number, I think, 83? It is 83. Wow. Isaac Wright. I've been wanting to do this one for a while. Any relation? No, I wish, though. Hmm. He's a cool dude, as you guys will see. So. Are we getting to it? Or do you want to talk about your life? Let's just get to it. Let's get to it. My (laughs) life is boring these days. You have a beautiful little girl that you take care of every day. She's very beautiful, and I love her very much. Yeah. Our little girl will be one this month, at the end of the month. It's very exciting stuff, which is one of the reasons that we're obviously not putting these out as regularly as we want them to be. She's a very active, almost one-year-old. She takes up a little bit of her time. Yeah. Plus, I have 170 other kids. That are in the range of about 15 to 18 years old. It's a rough, rough age. So. So Isaac, right? Yeah. It was actually really hard to find information about this guy because it seems like maybe he's just kind of recently gone somewhat viral because of some stuff that he's done recently. But I think prior to like 2019, I don't think that he was very much on people's radar. So we'll we'll talk about what he's got going on towards the end of the episode, but I just want to say it was actually hard to find some stuff. I found a pretty great Esquire magazine article from 2020 by Gabriel Bruni, as well as there's this podcast called The Breakfast Club Podcast, where he did an interview last summer, and the court transcripts as well as newspaper articles from the time period in which it happened. So pretty much from the time period in which it happened up until I would say about 2019, there's not a lot of stuff. This is a pretty crazy case, actually. Yeah. And Isaac Wright, he his well, his name is Isaac Wright Jr. He signed a book deal. So a lot of the holes that I'm probably going to give you will probably be filled in by that, but I I think it's going to be a few years before that book comes out because I think he literally just signed the book deal like this year or something. So it's going to, I don't think it's written yet. I don't know much about this one. Yeah. What I do know is pretty amazing. So Isaac Wright Jr. was born on January 23rd, 1962 in Orlando, Florida. He spent much of his childhood in Germany and most of his formative youth in Monk's Corner or Monk's Corner, South Carolina, I think it's monks. Monks? Monks. Monks. Okay. It's M-O-N-C-K-S. Corner. Monks. Yeah. Yeah. I I heard him say it. I think he said Monks Corner. South Carolina, where he claims that this is his hometown. He is the son of Isaac Sr. and Sandra B. Wright. He was the third of six children in a working class military family. So they moved around a lot from country to country and from city to city when he was young. In high school, he was a track athlete. He graduated from Berkeley High School and moved to New York when he was 18 years old. He got his music break on a little television show called Star Search. Did you ever watch that? I remember that that one, yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of people, I think, that kind of got their start on Star Search, right? Was was that with... Who was the the host? 
Was it like Ed? Was it Ed O'Neill or Ed McMahon? Or Ed, was it Ed McMahon? I'm thinking no. it was. Really? Right. It was Ed McMahon. It was. Huh? Yeah. Wow. Didn't and then he did like the sweepstakes thing for a while, right? Was that he the... was originally uh, Johnny Carson's replacement like, right hand man oh, right? oh that's he's right. the guy that sat on the couch and laughed at all the jokes right? oh yeah well he was he was the host of stir search isaac wright got his music break on that tv show and he was actually on there for a few weeks by 1989 isaac was a successful music producer he had a wife named adrielle sunshine mcnair wright she's most famously known as just sunshine wright who was one of the singers in the platinum-selling group called the Cover Girls that he helped manage. They had a little girl together, Tequila. I thought it was Tequila. It's Tequila. I heard him say it. He said Tequila. I've never seen it spelled like that. Yeah, it's T-I-K-E-A-L-L-A, but they call her Tiki, which I think is a really cute nickname. Everything was really, really, really good. Right, told Esquire magazine. Wright and his family moved to New Jersey, and within nine months of being there, he would be facing life in prison. So to backtrack a little bit and set the scene, in 1982, Nicholas Bissell became the chief county prosecutor of Somerset County. He promoted himself as a lawman, tackling drug dealers at the height of the crack epidemic while acting much like a crime lord himself. Later, he would be accused of trying to frame a judge who angered him with a charge for drunk driving and skimming thousands of dollars from businesses in which he invested. What a crazy bastard. Yeah, this is the guy who's like in charge of prosecuting people in like a huge uh, county in New Jersey. How many people do you think are like this around the country? Too many. Yeah, yeah. it's fucked. The president of a gasoline distributor that Bissell co-owned accused the prosecutor of threatening to plant cocaine in his car. But we'll get to more of that later on. He's not a great guy. This wasn't just a rogue cop. This was the chief law enforcement officer threatening to plant cocaine. Right, said. So there was just this air of criminality going on in the prosecutor's office before I even moved to New Jersey. And then I ultimately got snared up in that. So in the Breakfast Club podcast, he kind of talks about how he was doing really well for himself legitimately, but he was still friends with people like, quote unquote, on the street. He knew people affiliated with drugs. And so when he moved to New Jersey, he had a lot of connections and stuff, but he wasn't in the drug game himself. He was straight like he was a successful music producer. He was talking about how hip hop was just on the horizon, basically, and how he was going to be a part of that and all. Right. He didn't have like a reason to be illegitimate. You know, he was legit. So basically, his name kind of got thrown out there because of the people he knew. So in 1989, the Somerset County Prosecutor's Office, along with other law enforcement agencies, conducted a lengthy investigation concerning Wright's leadership of a drug distribution network extending throughout the counties of Somerset, Middlesex, and Passaic. That investigation culminated in July of 1989, when Isaac, as well as several of his quote-unquote co-conspirators, were arrested for numerous violations of the severe narcotics laws. Wright was arrested in Passaic, New Jersey, where he was allegedly caught buying two pounds of cocaine from a guy named Roberto Alexander. Police and prosecutors alleged that Wright, <clears throat> police and prosecutors alleged that Wright led a band of drug dealers who packaged up cocaine and shipped it to New Brunswick 
where it was then sent out for distribution throughout Middlesex and Somerset counties. Wright said that he had never dealt drugs, but had several friends who did, adding that he was a victim of circumstance. Wright told the Breakfast podcast in July of 2021 that when he was arrested for no reason, they tried to extort him for half a million dollars. They were like literally shaking him down like, hey, give us the money. We know you got money. Yeah, right. They were like like extorting him. So he didn't have the money, you know. I mean, back then, that would have been like $2 million. Like some mafia-style stuff. Yeah, they thought he was like connected, but he wasn't. He just was friends with people. So instead, they wanted him to set up his friends so that they could get arrested. He said that he didn't do it because he couldn't inflict that kind of pain on another individual. He said he could not see himself doing that. So they used him as an example, an example of what could happen to you if you didn't play their game. I mean, and this almost sounds like too hard to believe, right? Like that this, you know, this guy moves to New Jersey with his wife and child and he's, you know, doing well for himself and he's friends with maybe sketchy people on the block or whatever. But then like the police just like shake him down and like try to extort money from him and then threaten him. It almost it sounds almost made up, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sure. That happened to you. Right. Pretty over the top. Yeah. So in August of 1989, Wright was indicted and charged with leading a narcotics trafficking network, possession of cocaine with intent to distribute, maintaining or operating a narcotics production facility, and conspiracy to distribute cocaine. Oh, that's a mouthful. So is this a federal charge? Is this like a RICO thing? Yeah, it's a king. So the drug kingpin charge basically all of a sudden makes it a mandatory life sentence, basically. Because I think, yeah, it's it, it kind of how Rico kind of trumps a charge up to like something more serious. Like he could have just gotten like possession. But because of this new New Jersey law, it like trumped it up to kind of like almost terroristic levels of drug trafficking. Gotcha. He was one of the first people charged with New Jersey 1986 drug kingpin law which required that if found guilty of being a drug kingpin, you had to serve a minimum of 25 years. And then I've read somewhere else that it was a mandatory minimum of a life sentence. So 25 to life, essentially. However, with all of his charges, he was looking at life and then some. He waited in jail for two years before his trial started. Gotta love that shit, too. Yeah. During that time where he was waiting in jail, there isn't a lot of detail about it, which is one of the reasons I'm looking forward to his book, but just to fill in some details because it's really hard to find information. During that time, I think when he was waiting for his trial, his wife and him divorced. And I don't know if it was amicable. I don't know if it was a sad or a happy thing or whatever, but they divorced. Wright said that he never had faith during his trial that the truth would come out and the system would work to clear his name. He said, I knew early on that I was going to prison for the rest of my life and that there was nothing that no one was going to be able to do to help me. Even on the witness stand at trial, there was people up there and I had no clue who they were. I had never seen them a day in my life and they were pointing the finger at me saying I was their boss. Isn't that crazy? Where it's just like everybody's conspiring against you and you have no idea. It's insane. Only Wright knew that he was truly being set up. Although Wright only had a high school diploma, he said that he initially represented himself at trial, a move that he admits was insane. I wasn't going to pay somebody to send me to prison. 
I might as well strap up the boots and put on the gloves and get into the fight myself. He tried his best during the trial. Towards the end, one juror felt very uncomfortable putting him in prison, but was basically bullied by the judge for the jury to come to a consensus. Everyone else thought he was guilty and should serve serious time. So, in 1991, Wright was convicted on all charges and was sent to the maximum security New Jersey State Prison in Trenton. There, he began working as a paralegal on other prisoners' cases. Wright said, I got over 20 people out of prison, some with life sentences and others based on getting their sentences reduced. Despite the fact that he was facing life with the possibility of parole only after 30 years, he felt that he could fight back against the unfairness of the criminal justice system by advocating for others. The act of representing these other prisoners who were also wronged was a part of me fighting back and getting back at them for what they had done to me. And so all those victories, they represented something really, really, really important to me. He resolved not only to free himself, but to punish those who had stolen his freedom. One prisoner he helped was in for drug charges as well. In that legal brief, Wright attacked the jury instructions used by New Jersey in kingpin cases, reasoning that the instructions were contrary to the legislature's intent on who should be charged and convicted as a drug kingpin. I'm not going to try to pretend like I'm understanding all this, but basically he was able to contest the grounds of this guy's conviction. And you'll see he, he, he won it. It's awesome. And, and by doing that, it created a new law that basically kind of right. undermined the drug kingpin law. Wright then used that new law in a supplemental defense pro se brief to reverse his own kingpin conviction and life sentence. While this allowed Wright to successfully get rid of his life sentence, you're like, whoa, crazy, yeah. gone. Don't forget that he had other charges, too, that totaled up to 70 years. So even right. though he gets his life sentence lifted he's, yeah he's still got 70 more years to work on because of all the other charges how crazy is it to write basically your own law while in prison yeah that and, overturns your license yeah and he said that he was mindfully kind of doing things even during his trial because he knew everybody was lying so he was actually setting up kind of like little blocks to kind of knock over later on where he was like when i appeal if I say this to that guy at this time, it's going to come back and help me on my appeal. So it's like every single person, I, you know, I don't know if he purposely went, you know, help people with drug charges or what, but he basically was like, I'm going to work with these people and try to find ways for my own ticket to freedom right. through helping others. I obviously, I think he helped people out of the goodness of his heart because he's a fucking awesome dude. But like, but he's also he, like seeing how the system actually works and how he can game it. Exactly. Yeah. And so he was like every kind of like little thing was like a strategic chess move. Right. So that when he got his chance in court again, he would be able to take back all of those things, you know, that he had over the seven and a half years that he was incarcerated. This dude is amazing. Yeah. I know. And high school diploma. Like he yeah. was he was arrested when he was in his like late 20s or something. He was really young. He never went to college. Yeah, and take he that, was, college. Yeah, and he was, but he, well, he, well, eventually he does go to college. So, 
All right. So I know you're probably thinking about that county prosecutor that I introduced later on, the one stand up guy. Yeah. yeah, Nick Bissell. All right. Nice name. So by the mid 90s, prosecutor Nick Bissell's life was crumbling. Oh, weird. In May of 1996, he was convicted of dozens of felonies, including embezzlement and abuse of power. Confined under house arrest, he cut off his monitoring bracelet and went on the run. And when marshals found him in a cheap motel room in Nevada, he died by suicide to avoid the six to eight year prison sentence that he faced. Because, man, could you imagine that a county prosecutor who put a fuckload of people yeah, behind bars falsely? Yeah. How how long do you think he would fucking last in prison? I don't know, but dozens of felonies and he only gets six to eight years. Like, yeah. What the fuck? But like, even if he got one day in prison, he'd be fucking dead. Hopefully. I'm just saying, man, he signed a lot of people's fucking death. That's what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. There are a couple of publications that kind of make it seem like that Nick Bissell, the prosecutor, they kind of make it seem like because of right, he killed himself. But I think that he actually killed himself before all of this next stuff happens. It's only within a couple of months. So in 1996, Wright won an evidentiary hearing in which he forced Detective Dugan, he's just some guy that was on the job and helped to put him behind bars, to testify to the facts surrounding his arrest and prosecution. Detective Dugan admitted in court that there was a whole ring of corruption. And I think one of the reasons that he did that Uh is because Nick Bissell killed himself. The jig was up. The chief county prosecutor, it was... it's just it's crazy it's crazy how yeah. like this like whole thing of it's just like a domino like, yeah. effect yeah <laughs> so he admitted in open court that there was a whole ring of corruption occurring within the very precinct that arrested right it was revealed that secret deals between prosecutor bissell and other defense attorneys at the time pinned blame on right an innocent man he explained that drugs and listening devices were also illegally planted so he was found with two pounds of cocaine on him but it was planted by the prosecutor like of course and the police department that's the oldest trick in the book dugan pled guilty to official misconduct in order to escape prison and how can you escape prison if you you know i guess it's a it's a plea deal i guess so he pled guilty to official misconduct in order to escape prison and confessed to framing right under orders from the district attorney who paid the judge to guarantee Wright's conviction. I just want to repeat that again. He admitted to framing Wright under orders from the district attorney, the district attorney who paid the judge, paid the judge to guarantee Wright's conviction through a series of biased rulings. I only found that one article that talked about that one juror who felt really uncomfortable about convicting him. And the judge was like, you have to convict him. Just doing some really shady ass shit. Yeah. And this is one court. I know. And there's thousands of courts like this around. And, you know, even government works like this, too. Yeah. It's just everything is so corrupt. It's fucking mind blowing. I know. So Wright's trial judge, Michael Imbriani who further concealed the secret deals through illegal sentencing schemes, was removed from the bench and incarcerated on unrelated theft charges. So if we're kind of following the trend here, Wright gets his appeal. Like, it's not even an appeal. He 
he gets his evidentiary hearing. I'm, I'm assuming it's to go over the evidence again. And this is where everything kind of, I mean, obviously Nick Bissell dying. So the chief county prosecutor kills himself. Right. The detective or detectives admit official misconduct and that they framed right. And they all get a slap on the wrist, I guess. And then the judge who made sure that. Who got right paid would, yeah. to make. Get to he goes to jail. <laughs> so all of that happens because yes. Wright's a badass. Yeah, that's fucking awesome. Like that kind of shit never happens. This is totally like a Goliath thing, you know? Oh, totally. So Wright's remaining convictions were vacated. And after he spent seven and a half years in prison, he was immediately released and ultimately exonerated of all charges. The Supreme Court of New Jersey affirmed that decision. While reflecting on the whole ordeal, Wright says, I think one of the things that happens with, especially in the criminal justice system, is that the prosecutor is able to control the narrative from the very, very beginning. The moment an arrest is made, they put out a press release to the media, and the media follows that narrative. They do that to control the destiny of the person that they are going to be prosecuting. Yeah, they a lot of times call it trial by like media or like public opinion, the right. trial of public. That's one of the reasons they move court cases is that if it's too like sensationalized or advertised in the area, it's, it's too hard to get a non-biased jury. There's a lot of famous cases that got moved from the county that they were supposed to take place in because it was just too big of a sensational media storm. So basically just saying like, our criminal justice system is fucked because of people like Nick Bissell who do all the shady ass shit to make sure that you can't win in court. Yeah. <laughs> the game is rigged. Upon his release from prison, Wright attended and graduated from Thomas Edison State University in Trenton, New Jersey, receiving a bachelor's degree in 2002. That's the year I graduated high school. After that, Wright attended St. Thomas University School of Law in Miami, Florida, and earned a Juris Doctorate in 2007. He passed the New Jersey Bar Exam in 2008. The New Jersey State Bars Committee on Character investigated Wright for nine years before approval of admission to practice law, which happened on September 26, 2017. So just to get that straight, he could have been an attorney the same day, basically, that he passed the bar. And he's been exonerated. They withheld his law license for nine years because they wanted to, quote unquote, investigate him. Right. Because they're pissed that they that he. Fucking, Dude, I don't I don't I don't. That's that's my conspiratorial mind. Probably. Talking, I mean, but they're just like, I mean, Fuck this it, guy, he made us look like assholes, you know. Yeah, it, it's, it, feels, it feels like a punishment for sure. Yeah. And it's like nine years that he wasn't allowed to practice law. And again, like I kind of look forward in the book. Like I, I, I don't know what he did during those nine years. Like he may have continued working as like a paralegal or helping people. I'm not sure the kind of person that he is. He, I'm sure he was doing something productive during that time period. But that's a long time to wait to be nine legitimized. Years. You yeah. know, that's so shitty. <laughs> yeah. Three days later. He was sworn in as an attorney making history. This this like statistic is always used. It's just kind of funny because it's such a long title. He is the first and only person in American history to be sentenced to life 
in prison as a drug kingpin, gain his own release, and be admitted to practice law in the same court that sent him to prison. <laughs> yeah. He was the first person to do that. Uh, that's not surprising. Yeah. <laughs> On his Facebook page, in his About section, it reads... Quote, I went to law school for one reason and one reason only, to slay giants for a price. Such a good quote. <laughs> Around this time, he also had a settlement for a lawsuit he had filed in the 90s. He received peanuts. Meaning he didn't receive very much. Yes. Whenever asked, he always responds with peanuts. <laughs> Currently, Wright serves as a litigator with the law firm of Hunt, Hamlin, and Ridley in Newark, New Jersey primarily practicing criminal law. His focus is on defending the wrongly accused and going after corrupt institutions. Keep on doing that, buddy. Wright is also an executive producer along with Curtis 50 Cent Jackson on ABC's For Life, a television drama series inspired by Wright's life, which came out in 2020. It's currently on its third season, I believe. I also read an article. I haven't seen it. I don't have ABC, but other people said it got canceled. So I'm not sure if it's actually going on its third season or not. Gotcha. Additionally, Wright has founded the Isaac Wright Jr. Network for Justice, a national online database for legal and social justice nonprofits. Wright has also worked on several justice projects in Spain, Nigeria, Thailand, and Mexico. A little note on 50 Cent. So how they met, it's kind of it's kind of funny. There was like a nightclub, like a fight club, like nightclub kind of place that was illegal. And it was just kind of like an underground like thing. Like a speakeasy? Yeah, it was kind of like a speakeasy, but it was a fight club. And it was really popular and it was doing really well. And they had like rappers perform like at the halftime or whatever, or like during breaks because it was like a big thing. And the owner of the fight club really wanted 50 Cent to perform but uh -huh. 50 cent i don't know if you know much about him at all nah, I, really. I learned some stuff about him he's got a he's got a fucking crazy life which is interesting that him and isaac wright have become like buddies now but like he basically told the the fight club owner if you if this club this fight club was legal i would perform i don't want to be involved with like illegal shit basically so the fight club owner contacted Isaac Wright I think he knew him and said hey can you help me get this club can you legit whip up a new law well he's just like can <laughs> you help me make this club, club legit like it's pretty uncommon for them to come legit and right. so if you could help me kind of start working on it and Isaac got it legit in two weeks and wow. so 50 cent was able to perform like just a couple weeks later and 50 cent was asking the club owner how did you get this open so quickly and legit and he was like, I know a dude named Isaac Wright. He's this awesome lawyer. And he's like, I want to meet this guy. So he meets him and hears his whole story. And 50 Cent's got a crazy story, too. He was selling crack, heroin, and cocaine and shit when he was, like, in grade school. And he was, yeah. I think he was arrested at 12. And they found tons of shit on him. And he was able to kind of get out of jail time because he was so young i think he eventually got his like ged through like some second chance kind of program and then you know he goes on and as a youngish adult he was shot 12 times separately 12 like no at the times? same time he was in a car 
and he was like it was in the middle of like a drug deal and oh yeah and there was another time where he was in a drug deal and he sold four vials of cocaine to an undercover cop that's when i think he was officially arrested but anyways this Oops. other time he's got a crazy ass life he was shot 12 times he was shot like in the face in the hands in the feet in the legs and like in the stomach like he was shot everywhere except for like his vitals like except yeah. for like his brain right. yeah his lungs and his heart everything else he was shot all over his body isn't that fucking great 12 times 12 bullets hit him 12 you know, and, that sounds and, and crazy then, but i'm guessing that that's not that that whole story i don't think is rare in america sadly being shot 12 times or just being shot 12 times selling crazy drugs super young I guess he didn't get super swole, you know, because he's kind of known for being like a big muscular dude. It was part of his recovery after being shot. You know, he got really into like his rehabilitation and just got fucking swole. And then that's when he I think I think his rap career kind of started after that. Definitely got some credibility. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) So anyways, they're buddies now and um, they they did the show for life. It's kind of like I think it's like kind of like it's a. It's a drama and it's a television show. And the biggest difference between, you know, something that Isaac said in the Breakfast Club podcast, where which is where I got a lot of my most recent information about stuff, because, again, it's hard to find stuff about this dude. He said that the biggest difference between him and the main character that's kind of portraying him, it's, it's loosely based on his life. He said that the the guy who plays him was able to get schooled in prison. And so he kind of got out of prison and was a lawyer. And he was like, you got to understand that I didn't get my education fully and was able to be a lawyer until like 17 years after I got out of prison because he had to do four years to get his bachelor's, seven, f- another five years to get his Juris Doctorate, and then another nine years, you know, to get investigated. So right. he was like, you know, you know, the character makes it seem like it's, you know, easy to get legit, you know, but it's not. And he was saying that, you know, in the in the television series, the guy is like giving people legal advice as a lawyer in in jail, you know. Right. But Isaac Wright in real life was giving people legal advice and studying all this stuff without the aid of, you know, without the legitimacy of being a lawyer. He was just doing all with a high school diploma and some textbooks he found in the prison library. You know, it's fucking amazing what he did. Dude, it's awesome. So Isaac's daughter, Tequila Wright, lives in New York and is close with her father. She has a master's degree herself from Pace University and works in finance and owns her own business. In December 2020, Wright announced that he would be running for New York mayor in the 2021 mayoral election. He actually lost to Eric Adams in the June Democratic primary. And Amy says... That she would have voted for him, and I would have too. Yeah, if I, I mean, had lived in how New York. could you not vote for this fucking dude? He's so. If you listen to that Breakfast Club podcast, it's on like YouTube. You can see him. He is like the most genuine, knowledgeable, down to earth, actually trying to make shit work, dude. Like he's just, he's like, not to sound too cheesy, but he's like a huge inspiration to everyone. That like, no matter your circumstance, you can get above it. You know. Yeah. It's it's so crazy. So what do you think? <laughs> I think this guy's awesome. 
but I would not want to be the mayor of New York right now. It's like, I know, and he wants to be like post, you know, he was kind of talking about like post ish COVID, like all the fucked up shit he's seen and all the jobs lost and all the housing crisis and stuff. Like he's His got crime like, is insane. yeah, and he's got like a plan for it. That's, you know, and he's confident. I don't know. I would have liked to let him try. He well, really, sure really he's... hated Eric Adams, though. Really? I don't know much about it, but he was really, he was really against. So Isaac was Eric really. Eric Adams is like the old like head of police in New York City, I think. Is he? And he's in, he's, he wants stop and frisk. He thinks it's constitutional and is, can be a effective tool for police to use. And Isaac, right, was like, it's illegal and should be not a practice anymore. So that was like one of the big things that he had. Anyways, if if you listen to it, he's 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 illuminating. I highly recommend it. Yeah, so? I mean that is a pretty punk rock thing to do. <laughs> it's like rise up against your oppressors and then get to b- actually put all of them in like prison. Laws, like make laws, put the people who put you in prison in yeah. prison themselves. Like, yeah. damn, and off themselves. Yeah. Well, you can rate on you, buddy. (laughs) Well, you can rate, review, subscribe to our podcast on pretty much all the podcast platforms. Podcast platforms. (laughs) (laughs) We always get we're always so tongue tied at the end of our episode. So, yeah, do that. We also have a little group on. Oh, yeah. We have a Facebook group. We have an Instagram. It's called the True Crime Dumpster (laughs) Facebook group. And we're on Instagram and we're on Twitter, TC Dumpster. Although I don't know how much you update that. We need to get more on top of this stuff. Yeah. Well, that's what Abigail's going to learn how to do. As oh, soon that's as why we can, had her. Okay. As soon as her uh, thumbs grow a little bit more. <laughs> All right. Tune in next time as we continue talking out the trash. Bye-bye. <laughs> <laughs>